Why are you here this morning? Not to be rude, but why are you here this morning? You know, uh, it's interesting to think about why, I mean, I don't know if it ever occurred to you, but you could be somewhere else. You could be doing something else. You could be in bed, uh, enjoying your weekend. You could be out at the beach or in the mountains or visiting the snow or probably a million other things. Uh, I'm sure you've never thought about that, but um, you actually could have done something else with your morning. Um, I'll let you know a little secret. We don't really take attendance here. Um, We have on your app, if you open your app, you can actually look at this morning's uh, um, sermon notes, but the first question that'll be on there is, did you attend in person or online? Now, I want to tell you a little secret. I've actually never seen that number. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever seen that number. Uh, Maybe one of our, our our guy in charge of our media department, Jim, probably has seen that number, but we don't know, we don't go through and go, oh, looks like they weren't here at church on Sunday. So we don't know if you come or if you don't. You know, it, it takes some effort to, to get up, get dressed, get breakfast, get your day started, um, especially if you have kids, to get them dressed, to get them fed, to get them in the car. Um, I do it every week. That by itself is a good reason not to come to church or to stay home. Um, <laughs> Especially second service, man, you come here and you got to drive around and find a parking spot. And then we do things like we, we have a, a lunch and it, so people from first service stay and then it gets even harder to find a parking spot. Um, I, I saw a guy a couple weeks ago, he, he pulled up, he dropped his wife off so that she didn't have to make the long trek with him. And uh, they dropped some of the other car. And so I, I grabbed it and I chased after the guy. And I was chasing the guy as he circled the parking lot um, until he finally parked way off, you know, in Timbuktu over there. I was out of breath. I said, here, you dropped this. Um, but man, it just goes to show you that it's, there's kind of a hassle sometimes to come to church. There's easier things to do. There's other things to do. And you know, as you think through just the hundreds of people that are in this sanctuary right now and, and all the different paths that led you to being here this morning, there's so many different individual stories. There's so many different people who your reason for being in church is, is not the same as everybody else's, right? It's just the all, there, I mean, there would be as many people as there are in here, there'd be that many stories about what led you to church. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm glad you're here, but some of you are here because you've been going to church your whole life. It's just your habit. It's what you do. Some of you are here because you feel good when you come to church. You, you, you like the music or you, know, you, you like the preaching or whatever it is. Some of you guys are, are here because if you don't come, you feel guilty. Some of you guys are here because someone guilted you into coming. You're here because your mom or dad made you come. Some of you guys are here because there's a guy or girl that you think that are possibly interested in. Or maybe you're just hoping to meet somebody at church. It's a good place to meet a good guy or a good girl. But there's all these different motivations that, that cause people to go to church. And what's interesting is a lot of times we live in a culture, a society where our choices, we have so many choices. We have so many options. So many different things, and, and in some ways it's good, in some ways it's bad, but you know, when you go to the, the supermarket, you go to the cereal aisle, and you have 243 different options for cereal, right? You, you, can, you can get your, um, you can get with marshmallows or without marshmallows, you know, with crunch berries or without crunch berries. Like, you have so many different options to choose from, so many different choices to make, that sometimes we approach church in a similar way that we approach our shopping life or being consumers, we're looking for a church that maybe is people like us or maybe, you know, is, is a certain age demographic or, or, you know, a church that has comfortable seats or that has artisan coffee or that has great lighting. Uh-oh, we have artisan coffee and comfortable seats and great lighting. Uh, you know, churches know what people are looking for and, and, and sometimes churches 
um, oftentimes we, we begin to kind of market to certain people. You know, we recognize there's lots of churches to choose from, and so we try to market our church to certain demographics or pursue people that, that we think might try to attract people or get people to come to our church. I recently saw um, a church that had the, the slogan. It said the church name, and it said, um, helping you win. I thought, oh, I don't want to lose, you know? Um, I hate losing, actually. Um, I, winning is better than losing. And so maybe that is what is, the, the people are thinking, like, this will attract people to our church because people want to win. And so what is it that brings us to church? What is it that causes us to, to be a part of a church? Well, you know, the word church is a complicated word, too, because it has, in the English language, has, like, lots of different multiple meanings. And it's difficult oftentimes to, to, to know. It kind of clouds our thinking about it. Kind of they, all the meanings kind of end up melting together and, and kind of complicated. In, in one sense, a church means a building, right? We use the word church to say, oh, that, that's a church, right? It's the, it's the building with the steeple on it, or it's the building with the cross on the side of it. And you drive around San Diego and you see lots of different church buildings, right? Uh, if, if you travel to Europe or you travel to different parts, one of the things you might do is you might go look at the, the architecture of, of um, you know, chapels or, or architecture of different churches. You might go to, to the Sistine Chapel in Rome or, or um, you know, the Cathedral of Notre Dame or the, the St. Paul's Cathedral in London, or, and you just marvel at these beautiful buildings these guys spent decades and sometimes over a century to build and obviously made this massive investment. So the word church we use to mean a building, we also use the word church, though, to mean like a scheduled time. Like I'm going to church. This church service starts at 1045, and Lord willing, it's going to get out around 1215. We're pretty consistent with that. And so that's the time that I go. I, I, I am going to church, and then I'm in church, and then I leave church. And one of the problems with that kind of way of thinking is sometimes we think church is just this hour and a half or hour and 15 minute part of my life. So we use the word church. That's, that's how I use the word. I said, what brought you to church here this morning, right? I used it that way in the beginning. But an important question is, is, what does the Bible use the word church for? Because as you look at the word church as it occurs in the Bible, it never, it never defines, means by definition, a building. And it never means a specific time that people come together to, to worship. Church always means something different than that. And so let's, use, let's see how the word church is used in the Bible. We find out something very important in Matthew 16, 18. It's the very first time in the Bible the word church is used. And Jesus speaking, he said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Say my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower. This is an important verse, but the most important thing I want to highlight here is that the church does not belong to you or I. The church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. And so the question shouldn't be, what do we want to make the church? How do we want to attract people to church? Or how do I find a church that fits within my style, or that has the things that I like, or is my demographic? But we should be thinking about the church as belonging to Jesus. It's his church. He sets the tone for it. He defines what it's supposed to be. <laughs> this is a small point because in church culture, there's all kinds of different books and seminars and, and conferences that give people strategies and attitudes of how to make church more appealing to people to make them feel more comfortable. But too often we don't stop to say, Lord, what is it that you want the church to be? How do you want the church to look? It's like if you came over to my house and I invited you over and you came over and you started moving the furniture around and reorganizing things and taking the pictures of my family off the walls and putting up pictures of your family. And you went into the kitchen and you made yourself a sandwich. Okay, We would have a big problem 
because it's not your house. It's my house. And in my house, I have the things laid out the way that my wife likes them, okay? <laughs> not you. And you can do it in your house. In your house, you can lay it out how you want it or how your wife wants it, but it's not your house. It's my house, right? So often, that's how we approach church is we try to set the church up and make the church to be what we want it to be, and that's not what it is. It's not your church. It's the Lord's church. The word church in, in the New Testament is, comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia, and ekklesia is a, a compound of two Greek root words, ek meaning out of, and klesis meaning a calling. So it's the called out ones. And the way it was originally used was when they would muster the Greek army and they'd get the army together, they'd assemble the army. It was the group of called out ones. That was the ecclesia. Well, over time, the, the word evolved and it, become, it became to be used for the group of the ruling elders of a city or the, the ruling leaders of a city. When they would come together to do city business, they would call that the ecclesia. And so here when we come to the New Testament and we see Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they're trying to find what word are we going to use to describe this group of believers, this new group of people. It's distinct from the nation of, of Israel, distinct from just the Jewish people. They said, we're going to call that the ecclesia, the called out ones. And that is what the church, how the church got its name. It became the ecclesia, the church. And while it is good and right for us to gather together at church on Sunday, it's much more than that. It's, it's right for us to observe the Sabbath. It's right for us to come together. In fact, the Bible commands us in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says, don't for, forsake the gathering together of the saints. It would be sinful for us not to come together and worship, but the church is actually something much bigger than our, our uh, corporate worship that we come together for. So I want to suggest this morning a definition. This is my definition. I made it up a definition for church uh, to help us think a little more biblically about it. I want to encourage you to test it and see if this fits with, with what the scriptures teach. The definition is this. This is why I'm going to define the church. The people of God united in Christ for the purposes of God. Okay? The people of God united in Christ for the purposes of God. Don't woo yet. We're going to get, to, we're going to get through this. I want you to test it. I want you to see if it works for you. So it's, there's, there's three points in that sentence, Right? First is the people of God, second is united in Christ, and third is for the purposes of God. I want to go through those three things, and I want to just see, unpack those and see what it is that I mean by it. The first um, uh, proposition is the, the, the word, the, I'm sorry, the, the people of God, okay? So if you, if you want to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Say the people of God. It says, it says here that the way you become the people of God, your entrance into the people of God is through salvation. Through faith in Jesus Christ, when you receive him as your Lord and Savior, that makes you a member of the people of God. You are now a part of the people of God. And it says that, that God is going to call people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, from every disparate part of the world, from every different, disparate culture. He's going to call people from all over the place. He's going to call uh, old people and young people and tall people and short people and smart people and dumb people. He's going to call people from everywhere who look different, who, who, who are different, into the people of God. He's going to bring you from where you are and he's going to put you in the people of God. Now, 
Here at Foothills, we don't have formal church membership. So we don't have a class where you sign up and you say, yes, I want to become a member of Foothills, and we sign a contract. A lot of churches do that, and there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's a good thing. But by becoming a member of a church, it does not make you part of the people of God. That's not how you get, how you get in. The way you get in is simply by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That makes you the people of God when you're born again. I was talking to Neil a while back, and I said, Neil, how far back in your family does Christianity go? Like, how, how I, I know your dad's a pastor, your grandpa's a pastor, and he said, yeah, and then I think my, my grandpa's dad, so my great-grandpa, I think he was a believer, so I think probably three generations. And then I asked Dave, I said, Dave, how far back in your family does Christianity go? And he said, about 500 years. I said, Dave, would you talk to Neil and just tell him a little bit about the family history or what's going on there? Because Neil has no idea about this. So on the Hoffman side, uh, they, they, Hoffman comes from Germany. They, they go back to like almost the Reformation, this early period. They, they can look back and see, man, they have this rich, beautiful tradition of gospel faithfulness of 500 years of gospel faithfulness in their family. Well, there's some people in this room, that is not the family that you come from. You don't come from 500 years of faith in Jesus. In fact, for some of you, you come from something much different than that. Some of you guys are the only Christian in your family. And what's, what's really beautiful is it doesn't matter. God takes people from every background, every walk of life, and he brings them into the family, and we all have the same position as heirs of Christ. He gives it to all of us, no matter what family you come from, no matter where you come from, no matter what your history is. It's been said that Jesus doesn't have any grandchildren. Everyone for themselves must profess faith in Christ. And that as you give your life to the Lord, as you, as you give your life to Jesus, you become part of the people of God. Okay, so that's the people of God. Secondly, the next part of it is united in Christ. The people of God united in Christ for the purposes of God. Unity is a, a word that gets kind of put out there a lot as part of, you know, kind of political slogans or social programs is we want to have unity. Unity is really important. It doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of unity going on out there though, right? A lot of times it's just sort of a, a marketing term or a marketing slogan. But the Bible uses the word unity in a really important way. The dictionary def defines it as oneness. I think that's a good definition for the way that the Bible uses the word unity is that when you give your life to the Lord, there's a, a, a supernatural, powerful, transformed, mysterious thing where we become unified with Christ, that actually the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. And we become so connected, there's this powerful unity that happens when you give your life to Jesus. So much so that it, it, the Bible gives us this analogy, and we, use, we hear it a lot of times in church, but it's the body of Christ. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. When you think about your physical body, it's who you are, right? I mean, you're, you're all the different parts that make you up. If you want to come here and chop off my finger, I'd say, whoa, stop, please don't. That's part of my body. I want that, right? Um, all of us, the Bible says that we are not just, not just ourselves, but we are the body of Christ. Individually, all of us are members of his body, we're, something, we're part of something much bigger and much more important, but we are an essential part of his body. To be united in Christ, listen, listen to how radical it is that Christ identifies with us. It says, you know, your life does not belong to you. 
We are supernaturally a part of him. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus is saying, listen, the people that are going to enter in, this is a great white throne judgment, the people that are gonna, they're gonna enter into heaven, he's gonna say, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you came to me. And I said, Lord, when do we ever see you like that? And he says, in Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. He's saying, these brothers of mine, when you did it for them, you were doing it for me. He identifies so deeply with them. He's saying, they are a part of me. I am a part of them. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Should I take my, this is why it'd be wrong for us as believers to go and fornicate or go and, and sleep with a prostitute or, or commit adultery because you're taking what is a member of Christ, what is holy and set apart for him and you're giving it to something vile to go and, 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 and go into whoredom with idolatry. That would be wrong and wicked of you because you were a member of Christ. Acts 9, 4 and 5, when Saul before he's converted. This is the moment of his conversion, but he's, he's been an enemy of the church. He's hated the church. He's gone around killing Christians and persecuting Christians and throwing them in prison. In fact, he's on his way to Damascus to do more of that. The Bible says that, that the Lord appears to him and he sees this, this great light. And it says in Acts chapter nine, verse four and five, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, what's interesting is that, that Paul has never met Jesus. Uh, you know, uh, their, their lives barely overlap. Paul um, had never met him. He just knew he was a cult leader and was going to make sure he was going to snuff out this, this religious heresy that was going on. But here, when Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute my believers, to persecute my church is to, to do violence against me, Jesus says. Think about how deeply it is that Jesus identifies with us. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. He's invited you to come into this oneness with him. And not only are we as individuals united to Christ, but we're united to each other through him. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. I want you to listen to how many times I say the word one. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. All of us are part of this one body that needs each other to function rightly, that needs, is, is dependent upon each other. So often people want to kind of think of their own faith as a private matter. Or they're kind of these autonomous beings. That's not what the Bible teaches. You know, you know if, if you met, met one of those people who just says, well, that's between me and Jesus, and I have a personal relationship with him, and I don't need the church, or I don't need, you know, I just, I can read my Bible for myself. I don't need to go hear what some pastor has to say. Well, that might be true. You might not need to go hear what some pastor has to say, but you do need to be a part of the body of Christ. And you can't be a part of the body of Christ by yourself. <clears throat> we need each other. And this gets to something that I think a lot of Christians miss. I think this is such an important part of us, how we need to understand the church and our role in it. So oftentimes we kind of think about, man, what am I going to get out of church? And some, some of you might have thought that this morning. Is it going to be worth it? You know, they might have looked up the notes. And who's preaching this weekend anyways? And um, 
Uh, is, it, is it worth it for me to go? Or what am I going to get out of it? We think about that with home group. Uh, you know, I, I, got, I got laundry to do. I got that Netflix show I want to catch up on. I've got, you know, um, what, you know maybe I, my, my kid's really good at soccer. And so we do a travel team on, Sunday, on a lot of Sundays. And so we don't really get a chance to go to church. And we make this evaluation. Is it going to be worth it? What's more important to me? What's more valuable to me? going to the desert and, and, or going to the beach or going to church. Like, and we, we make this kind of evaluation and the, the evaluation is what am I going to get out of it? And yet that is not a very biblical understanding of the role of the church. The role of the church is, is, that, is that being a part of the body, God has given you different giftings, different strengths, different abilities that he intends to be used for the edification of the church, the edification of the body. So it's, it's like if the finger's like, well, I don't know what I'm getting out of a, you know, a pedicure, you know, um, that's not, that's the wrong way of thinking about it, right? Because all of us are, sen- that was a weird analogy. That one doesn't really make sense. Um, <laughs> what did I say? Reification or, I don't know. I just make it. Um, that one doesn't work as well, but, but the idea that it, it, he's going to say it right here, Paul, let's just look at the scriptures because the scriptures teach it. <laughs> when in doubt, return to the scriptures. First Corinthians 12, 14 through 20, it says, for the body is not one member, but it's many. But if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If, there were, if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. It's because of the eyes that the, body, the whole body gets to see. It's because of the ears the whole body gets to hear, right? It's because the, the different body parts play a different function for the body. And so let's just explain how it's working this morning here. I want to just kind of explain something really important about church. Is that we're a big church, okay? And so Sunday morning when you come, uh, my, my gift of what God has called me to do for the body Christ is I'm doing. This is, this is my gift. You're welcome. Um, and you can decide if it's a good gift or it's, you know, shaky or whatever. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't begging for, I'm doing just fine. Okay. I, um, if anything, like, Bleh, I don't know how good it is. Um, but, but on Sunday mornings, it, it's a little bit hard. My gift is obvious. The worship team's gift is obvious. They're coming and playing. There, there's, there's people who are ushering and who are serving us. There's people who are teaching the classes who have different gifts. So their gifts are on display here. There's a group of people who are praying in that crow's nest back there, praying and in, in, interceding for the, they have the gift of intercession. They're giving us their gift here this morning. But for many of us, it's not evident your gift is not as much on display. Because it's hard in a big group like this for your gift. Now, you're gonna, some of you guys have the gift of hospitality. Some of you guys have the gift of encouragement. Some of you guys have the gift of intercession. At the end, we're gonna pray for people. Some people have, have those gifts of, of just praying and, and blessing people. There's, there's gonna be different opportunities for those gifts to be on display. But the way that your gift really shines is in a smaller group of believers. It's in home groups. This is why small groups are so important here at the church. And uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna be pushing this for the whole month of March. I hope that series coming up, um, Church in the Wild, I hope you'll listen to it because we're just gonna really try to say we want everybody as much as possible to be in a home group because that's where in the body life of the church, the gifts come into their, their greatest fruition. And so, so that's where, you know, this morning, if you have a prophetic word, it's gonna be hard for you to get it in because I, like I said, we already had these, politicians up here, and I've got a lot to say, and so we're probably not going to make time for you to come up and, and give a prophetic word. But at a home group, there is time for that. 
And so some of you guys, you guys move in, in those kind of giftings. You have word of knowledge, or you, you have the gift of praying for people to be healed, or you have, you know, whatever it is. You have the gift of making banana bread, or whatever the thing is, right? Now, here's what people miss. This is so, this is so essential. It's not just what are you going to get out of it, but it's what do you have to give, we, we, look, if, if, you, if your gift is encouragement, right? You could be having a terrible day, but you just have the gift of encouragement. When you see people, you have a way of just lighting up the, you know, hey, did you, have you lost weight? You look great, you know? No, I haven't, but I feel better now just by you saying that, right? Or, or whatever it is that, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm so glad to see you. And just those people that make you feel warm. Well, if that person doesn't show up, those people don't get encouraged. You know, if, if you have the gift of, of, of walking in, in discernment, you have a, a word for somebody, you say, man, I, I sense that something's going on in your life. Well, if you don't show up because you had something better to do or you had something else to do, that person's not gonna get the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God gave you to give them. Or they're not gonna get, we're not gonna be able to eat your banana bread that God gave you the gift of hospitality to, to encourage us, right? So we want the prophetic word. We want the banana bread. We want the encouragement, but they don't, we don't get it unless you come unless you make that commitment to being a part of the body of Christ. That's how we need to think about what it is to be a part of the body of Christ. I want to give you a test real quick, a real simple test. And this is going to help to just see, this is, it doesn't tell you everything, but it might give you a good indication of how involved in the body of Christ are you. The, the test is this. It's really simple. Who are you spiritually submitted to? Who are you spiritually submitted to? Now, that is a real uncomfortable thing for us to say. We, we have all kinds of objections and makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But here, here's the reality. Um, I, Neil and I pastor the church and the other pastors are the pastor of the church. Um, and, and, I, and we pastor it in a sense of like um, the, the, the proclamation of the word of God on Sunday mornings and gathering to, to worship. But the, the truth is, in, in a real important sense, I'm not pastoring most of you in this room. You know, the, the very best, the most efficient pastors could maybe pastor 50, 100 people, maybe at max. But if, if I don't know you, if I've never, you know, if I'm not involved in your life, if, if you came to me and said, hey, I started dating a girl, I'm really interested in her, do you think I, you know, should marry her? I'm thinking about asking her to marry me, do you think it's a good idea? And I have to say, like, who are you and what's up with, you know, I don't know anything about, I don't know what your strengths and weaknesses are, I don't know anything about you, then I'm not your pastor, but you should have someone in your life who's spiritually speaking into your life, especially those of you, the men in this room, the, the heads of household. You should have someone in your life that you are spiritually submitted to. And, and the way it works here at Foothills is, is we have, Neil is the, the lead pastor of this church, right? And, and uh, over him is the, the, um, the, our elder board. And then, and then underneath that is the, the pastor of this church. The, and then underneath that, we have ministry leads and we have home group pastors. You should be involved in one, some, one of those guys should be involved in your life, should know enough about you that they could speak into your life and help you. That lets you know if you are part of the body of Christ. You know, one of the problems we have in the church today is we have this culture of celebrity pastors. We have these big name pastors and they have TV shows and they have, they're on YouTube and you can go see, listen to their sermons. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm regularly edified by listening to other pastors, but they're not my pastors. Now I can get good teaching, I can get good information, but they don't know me. You know, Mark and Dave and Neil are my pastors. They know me, they can speak into my life. But, and so, so what inevitably happens is some celebrity pastor, pastors aren't meant to be celebrities. And so they fail in some kind of massive way. And people downstream, there's all these downstream consequences of people, their lives getting shipwrecked and their, their own faith being, being really challenged or broken up because this person failed. Well, part of it is their fault for failing. But another part of it is we're, we're not meant to put our, 
our trust in some celebrity pastor. You're meant to submit your life to people who know you who are going to give an account to God for you. Okay, moving on. The people of God united in Christ for the purposes of God. So we have the people of God united in Christ, but what are the purposes of God? That's who the church is, but what is it the church is supposed to do? Many people think that God is somehow at work in the world, just kind of doing signs and wonders and appearing to people and that kind of stuff. He does do some of that, but the bulk of the work of the administration of God is done by the church. It's done by the body. You know, your body does a lot of different things. It walks, it runs, it, it speaks, it does all kinds of things, but the body primarily does what the head tells it to. And so the function of the body is to do what it is that Jesus tells us to do. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, it says, To me, the very last of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration. Say the administration. The administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, if we, if we really broke this verse down, what we find is that the church is the administration of God. You think about like, a, like the president of the United States. He has, he's the head of the federal government. There's 2 billion federal employees, okay? And they all, he's the boss of all of them. They're all, their job is to do what he says and to work out his plan. Now, he, if it was just, he was in charge with making sure everything happened, making sure the, the border was working the way it was supposed to, and make, <laughs> making sure the roads were working the way they're supposed to, interstate commerce was working, that, you know, the, um, the, the national interest, the military, all those things. It, one man cannot do that. And so he has an administration. And that administration works out and, and does what it is that, that, that the boss tells him to, the president tells him to, his agenda. Well, the church is the same way. The church has a head, and our job is to do the things that God has called us to do, to bring about his agenda. You know, have you ever thought about the responsibility that Jesus gave to the church? When Jesus died and he rose again, and he, was, he had his 11 disciples at that point, right? Um, Judas had, had committed suicide. And he, he trusted him. He said, he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Now, if, if Jesus at that point had brought me on as a consultant, you know, I would say, Jesus, I'm not sure these are the right guys. You know, um, we've, they've already kind of failed lots of different little tests along the way. You know, like maybe we can get 11 smarter guys, you know, <laughs> or maybe 11 harder workers, you know, or maybe guys uh, in 11 real like, faith-filled believers that we can get to do this. But he said, no, these 11 guys. And that's what he did. He said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. And, and that's what they've been doing. That's what they did. And, and, and they went and made disciples. And those people went and made disciples. He entrusted the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ to save the whole world to these 11 dum-dums, okay? And then those 11 dum-dums found some other dum-dums to follow them and entrusted to them. And that's the way that the gospel has spread throughout the entire earth is God entrusts us, his people, the church, with this, with this holy, precious mission to fulfill the administration of Christ. I want to invite the band up here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. I want you to, li- I want you to look at the picture that is being painted here in Ephesians. Okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a picture of what's going on spiritually, symbolically. 
says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's talking about the Father seated in heaven and that Jesus is at his right hand. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Far above all power and authority and dominion, all any kind of, uh, of programs, any kind of, of nations, any kind of power structures, anything in this world is powerful. All of it is placed under the authority of Jesus who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And he put all things, say all things. things. What's interesting here is in the Greek, the word all things means all things. In subjection under his feet. And he gave him, Jesus, as head over all things. Say all things. things. To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the picture here is God the Father, Jesus at his right hand. And it says that Jesus is, he's given Jesus as the head of the church. And that the church is his body. And then what is underneath the feet of the body? All things, everything. Everything, whatever you can think of. It's all under the feet of the body. And so the picture of the structure of the ruling power of God's kingdom is that you have the father and the son ruling with him. And the son is the head of the church. And the, the church is the body of Christ. And underneath the body, underneath the church is everything. And that's the, the intended structure of the kingdom of God. And you go out those doors and you just go live your life. Does it feel like to you the church is in its proper role of ruling and reigning with Christ over all things? No. No, it looks like a dumpster fire out there in a lot of ways. It's, it, there's a lot of things that are out of order. There's a lot of things that are broken. There's a lot of things that are, that are messed up. I, I want to say at any particular moment, you just take a picture, it's easy for us to see all the things that are wrong. But if you pull out and you take a look at the last 2,000 years and you look at what it is that God has established through the church, you, know, you think about the, the way that in, in, in Roman and Greek uh, culture, it was common if you gave birth to a girl and you didn't want a girl, you wanted a boy, that you would just take the baby or if the baby was deformed in some way, you just take the baby and leave it at the dump so it could just die of exposure. And that Christians used to go to the dump and they used to find these babies and they used to bring them in. That's, that was how you know, just these babies would get taken care of. And they began to rescue these people. And you think about the, the hospitals and the, the, how much suffering we've been able to alleviate. So many of those things were missions of the church. The church is established. You look back across history, you think about just human rights and, and rules of war and just different things. Like, man, there's a lot of things that, that the world, humanity has come a, a, a long ways. A lot of things that have been established because of Western culture. Western culture were just a bunch of vicious barbarians apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think about how much better the world is in many ways, but, but I, I'm not going to tell you there's not a lot more that needs to be done. But I want to say when you take the long view, the church has been really remarkably successful at bringing about the light of the gospel and the goodness of God and the earth. But as we, as we think about how to understand this, the kind of the other parts that are still messed up, I want to I just give you an analogy. Imagine that there's a king, and he has a vast, vast, vast kingdom a vast empire. And there's, there's different parts of this empire. It's so, it's so big. It's full of different people groups and it's full of different subcultures and all kinds of different parts of this kingdom. 
And, and the king is ruling over, but there's different parts of the kingdom that are in rebellion against him. They, they've, they've started these little rebellions. There's other people, they don't want his rule, and they've, they've pushed against it. And, and because the king could go in, he could muster his army, and he could ride across them, and he could squash the rebellion. He could crush the rebellion. But this king, he's, he's merciful. He's kind. He's long-suffering. He wishes that none would perish. And so he sends out ambassadors and emissaries to plead with these different rebellions, to say, look, this, this king is a good king. If you, if you trust him, uh, he will receive you and you will, you will be able to enter into the, the good life that comes from, from being his, in his kingdom, from having his authority to rule over you. It's better than what you have now. In fact, what you have now is, is terrible and this king will receive you. Well, that's like what the kingdom of God is like. There's, there's parts of the kingdom that are in rebellion against God. And it's the church's job to go out and to be ambassadors and to be emissaries and to plead with people and to show them a better way, to show them the love of God, that they might, they might have a king who would come and protect them and love them and receive them and rule over them. They might enter into the abundant life that the king has for them. Well, it's been said that Jesus deals with his enemies in one of two ways. He either makes them his friends or he destroys them in, the, in his wrath. And, and, and he wants, of those two, he wants to make you his friend. He wants that we would know him and, and, and come and meet him on his terms and surrender to him. But if you don't, and if those parts of rebellion don't, that, that Jesus will come and he will trample out the fierce wrath of God. It will glorify God in the destruction to put down those rebellions. But now, that day is going to come, but now is the opportunity for the church to plead and make deals of peace with people. And that's what the, the administration of God is, that, that he invites us to come out and be his, his ambassadors of his hope. But you know what makes you effective as an ambassador? Is when you have fully yourself surrendered to the king. You know, so often I think we feel held back or we feel like, you know, maybe we're not the right person. One of the, one of the reasons is because a lot of times we have parts of rebellion in our hearts and our lives. There's parts of our lives that we are trying to kind of keep to ourselves or we don't want the Lord to rule and reign over us. And so part of the, inv the invitation is one of the reasons the church gathers like this is so that we can come and we can use our gifts to strengthen one another, to strengthen our brothers and sisters, to encourage them, to, to, to convict them, to challenge them, to pray for them, to invite us to come deeper. We, we, as, as we come and engage here, the corporate body of Christ, we become stronger. And as we, as we lift each other up, so here at our service, um, you know, for over 20 years, I think we've had the front of our sanctuary set back like this. We have an open area here. That's bad room dynamics. It's not great for speaking. The closer, the better. But we do that on purpose. We leave it that way because we have at the end of our service, we have an opportunity to minister to one another, to be the body of Christ to each other, to use our gifts to encourage and love on each other. Some people in here came here today and they're struggling and they're weak in some way. And there's other people in here who are strong and they have the faith of the Lord and they want to impart it to you. They want to lift you up and encourage you. And so that's, that's what we're going to do right now. Would you stand to your feet?